The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. But let me start out with why. Why would anybody be interested in this kind of thing? This week, we join Massimo Pigliucci, Professor of Philosophy at CUNY City College, as he guides us through the Hellenistic philosophy of Stoicism. Well, Stoicism is a philosophy of life using reason to improve society. That's pretty much what Stoicism tries to do. So what is Stoicism? How did it develop? And what lessons can we learn from it today? Why would anybody want to be a Stoic? If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at IAI underscore TV. Leave a review on iTunes and head over to our website, iai.tv, to hear more from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Before we start today's episode, here's a word from our friends at Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. Take a trip around the wonders of the cosmos with Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. Let the Radio Astronomy team lead you through the very latest in space news, from updates on mankind's new race to the moon, all the way through to breaking discoveries from the depths of our universe. Our regular monthly episodes feature interviews with leading experts in the field, while our stargazing tips for beginners will help you start your journey into the night sky. Subscribe to Radio Astronomy today. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and all good platforms. Visit www.skyatnightmagazine.com for more details. Now back to Massimo Pigliucci for this week's talk. All these people are interested in stoicism? What are you, nuts? Um, the Epicureans are meeting around the corner, by the way. Ah, I know, right? They have free drinks. Um, no, just kidding. Okay, so... Uh, how to be a Stoic, uh, actually the title of the book um, that I'm gonna be briefly talking to you about is a handbook for new Stoics. Why would anybody want to be a Stoic and why do we need a new handbook since there's plenty of uh, really, really good books that were written 2,000 years ago? Well, first of all, because they were written 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so the language is not exactly that accessible. Also, we learned a few things from science and philosophy in the last 2,000 years, not a lot, but enough to, uh, to, to come up with a little bit of an update on, on the basic concepts. But let me start out with why. why. Why would anybody be interested in this kind of thing? Well, Stoicism is a philosophy of life, one of a number of philosophies of life. You probably have heard of others. Epicureans, I just mentioned, uh, is, is one, Epicureanism. Uh, Buddhism is another one. Uh, it may be a religion, it may be a philosophy of life. In fact, I don't think there is much of a difference between the two in some respects. 
I think that a philosophy of life has essentially two components. A metaphysics, which is a general account of how the world hangs together, how, how things work. And an ethics, which is a general account of how we should behave in that world. Right? The notion typically is that in order to figure out how to behave in the world, you need to, have to know something about how the world actually works. Otherwise, you are liable to mislive, to, to, to live a life that is not really in accordance with, with how things work. So every religion in the world is also a philosophy of life. I, I grew up Catholic, for instance, um, and uh, you do learn two things. You learn about metaphysics. You know, God created stuff, and he, he basically controls what's happening in the world. Whether you believe that metaphysics or not, that's a different issue. But it does have a metaphysics. And then, of course, you go to church on, on Sunday mornings to learn how to deal with other people, how to, to behave uh, as a decent human being, and so on and so forth. So the differences between different philosophies of life and religions, in my mind, are actually rather minor. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between Stoicism and Buddhism, for instance. Uh, even Epicureanism is not really that different once you get into the details. But they have enough differences that uh, different philosophies or religions will uh, speak to certain people and not necessarily to others. That depends in part on your cultural background, on your personality, on where you are in life, etc., etc. So when I started getting into this kind of stuff a few years ago, I did explore a number of possibilities. I read a little bit about Buddhism. I read about Epicureanism. Of course, I knew about the standard religions, and nothing really clicked. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, I saw, of all things, on my Twitter feed, I saw something that said, help us celebrate Stoic Week. I said, what the hell is Stoic Week, and why would anybody want to celebrate it? Um, but I was curious. I kind of vaguely remember the Stoics from, from high school. And I, I signed up, and it immediately clicked, right? So as soon as I started reading Epictetus, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, I said, oh, this guy's actually talking to me uh, in a way that I understand. And here we are five years later. I'm still talking about it. So let me, so that's, that's why we're doing it. It's, uh, everybody has a philosophy of life, whether they realize it or not. Either because you inherit it as your religion when you grow up, or, uh, or your philosophy as you grow up, or because you still go through life with a certain general understanding of how the world works. That's the metaphysics again. And you also presumably have some kind of intuition, at least, of how to behave toward other people, and that's your ethics. Whether you actually have it spelled out uh, and you thought about it, or not, it's, it, that's, that's the difference. And the, the bet that with my co-author, Greg Lopez, uh, we make in the book is that it's better actually to know about this stuff, what, to think about what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it, rather than just wing it uh, for your life, for your entire life, and then you get to your deathbed and say, oh crap, could have done better. There's no do-over, yeah. uh, as, as, as far as we know. Uh, so that's why. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about stoicism in particular, and then what I want to do is to give you just to give you sort of the, the really basic stuff, and then actually I'd like to walk you through a couple of the exercises in the book because this book is very practical. It's got very little theory in the right in the beginning to get you uh, going, but then it's actually 52 exercises, which if you uh, have enough endurance, you can go on for an entire year uh, to do one one per week. Uh, if you don't have that level of endurance, however, or at least you're not that committed at the beginning, because I understand that's a, that's a hell of a lot of uh, commitment, we do provide a cheat sheet at, begin at the beginning. We say, okay, here are the nine crucial exercises you want to go through. And so you can just invest a few weeks, see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, well, you only wasted 20 bucks or something. So, um, so 
first the basics. Uh, Stoicism started out uh, about the, 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 near the end of the fourth century uh, before the modern era. Uh, in Athens, uh, the guy that established the philosophy was uh, Zeno of Citium. Zeno was actually a merchant, and uh, he lost everything that he had in a shipwreck uh, right outside of Athens. He made it uh, to the city, and of course, what, what, what would be the first thing you did if you just lost everything in life? You walked to a bookstore. That's what he did. And if you walk to a bookstore, what happens? Well, you obviously you hear the owner of the bookstore reading out a book about philosophy. And in particular, uh, in, that, in that case, the memorabilia, which is a book by Xenophon about the life of Socrates. So Zeno got like, it was very interested and he asked the, the bookseller, he says like, where can I get me one of these, meaning a philosopher? And, and the books, bookseller said, over there, there is one just walking by, because that was ancient Athens. Athens. You know, people were walking by, and chances are that they were philosophers. Um, the guy in question, it's a different world. You know, it was a different world. The guy in question was uh, Cratus of Thebes. He was a cynic philosopher. Cynicism doesn't mean what it mean, didn't mean what it means today. In fact, many interesting English words, cynic, skeptic, stoic, and epicurean, don't mean what they meant in ancient Greece. Um, and that, that could be a whole interesting talk right there, but I'm not going to do it now. So uh, Zeno started studying first with uh, Kratis, then with other teachers, and eventually he felt confident enough to sort of start teaching on his own. Uh, and he started doing that in public, in a place called the Stoapo Ikile, which means the painted porch, uh, right in the middle of the market near the Agora in central uh, Athens. And that's why the philosophy is called Stoicism, because it started out in the Stoa. So Stoas are where public markets, public colonnades, where people would gather. So Stoicism from the beginning was for the people. Was They were interested in talking to the people uh, that were just walking by, as opposed to most of the other schools, uh, which established themselves in the suburbs outside of Athens so that they wouldn't be bothered uh, by you know, people unless they were really interested. So that's how it started. Now, the basic ideas are three, fundamentally. There's one basic uh, assumption that comes with the philosophy, and then there are two major ways of practicing it. And so I'm going to go briefly through that, and then we'll get to the exercises. The basic assumption of Stoicism is that we should live life according to nature. Now, before you run into the forest naked and start hugging trees, <laughs> that's not what it means. There's nothing wrong with doing that. If you want to do it, go ahead. Um, uh, but, but that's not stoicism. Living according to nature means that we should take seriously human nature in order to decide what kind of life you will want to live. Because otherwise, uh, after all, we are in fact human beings. We're not lions. We're not chimpanzees. We're not something else. So there are certain things that work for human beings because of the nature of humanity or what it means to be human. Now, of course, different people have different ideas about what it means to be human. Uh, the whole concept of human nature has been under discussion in both science and philosophy for literally 2,000 years. The Stoics had this notion, however, that there are two fundamental components to being human that trump everything else. One is that we're eminently social animals. We're not the only social animals, obviously. Uh, there are social, other social primates that are social insects and so on. But we are fundamentally social. We can survive on our own if we have to, but um, even for long periods of time. But in fact, we thrive only in social groups. 
we seek recognition, we seek affection, we seek relationships with other people. So that is, that is a fundamental component of a good human life. The second thing that distinguishes human beings is the ability to reason to a far greater extent than any other species on Earth. We can have a whole separate discussion. I'm, I'm a biologist. We can have a whole separate discussion about the extent to which other species are capable of reasoning or not. But hey, it's just us here. There, I don't see any chimpanzees discussing philosophy at the moment. So we definitely have an ability to reason far above uh, and beyond anything else on planet Earth. Now, whether we use it well and we use it often, that's a whole different thing. Um, but we are capable of it. So from those two things, according to the Stoics, it follows that a good human life, a, a human life that is worth living, the, the Greek word is eudaimonia, uh, is made of, is, consists of using reason to improve society. So to be helpful to other people and to yourself by applying your ability to reason. Okay? So that's pretty much what Stoicism tries to do, to improve people, to make people better, at using their reasoning abilities and use them not for their own uh, selfish uh, motives, but in order to make everybody better, uh, to make the, pl the place, the planet, a better place. The notion is that because we're so interdependent, whenever you help other people, you're helping yourself. And whenever you try to become a better person, you're automatically helping other people around, around you. So that's the fundamental assumption. Now, it's an assumption you can... You can uh, disagree with it, and in which case, as I said, the Epicureans are meeting on, uh, around the corner. Those are the people who thought that the most important thing in life is to uh, minimize pain. It's reasonable, you know. Yeah, we don't. Nobody wants to pain, but they make it the, the most important component of their philosophy. Here, the, the issue is using reason to help society. Now, how do you do that? There are different approaches in Stoicism, different teachers. Uh, will approach in a different way. The three big ones that we know of are, I already mentioned, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Uh, these are three so-called Roman Stoics. I say so-called because, in fact, Seneca was from, from Spain and Epictetus was from Western Turkey. Uh, but they lived during the Roman Empire, so everybody was a Roman at that point. Marcus Aurelius was an actual Roman. He actually was born in Rome. They have three different approaches. I encourage you to read their, their things. If, you, if you're just starting out, I would say, obviously, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. That's the only book he wrote anyway. So he's not going to have other choices. Um, Epictetus' Manual, uh, or the Enchiridion, and uh, Seneca's Letters uh, to his friend Lucilius. Those are the three of the foundational uh, uh, texts in Stoicism. And what you get if you read them is these people are very different personalities. Seneca writes beautifully. Uh, he's very approachable, he's very humane, he's, he's, he really has compassion for his friend Lucilius, he's trying to be helpful. And he's very modest, he says, you know, I'm, I'm just as sick as you are, uh, but I'm just trying to be helpful here. Uh, Epictetus is my favorite, uh, he's a no-nonsense, uh, sarcastic sense of humor. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples in a few minutes when we get to the exercises. He just uh, says it like, it like it is. And Marcus Aurelius is brooding, doesn't like people, but he has a very strong sense of duty. And so he says, yeah, I know you don't want to get up in the morning. It's better to stay under the, the, the uh, warm blanket. But you know what? You have duties. You need to get out there. And even if people are going to be nasty to you, uh, you need to treat them well. Remember, this was the emperor. So if people were nasty to emperors, to Roman emperors, usually they would lose their head. Uh, in, in the case of Marcus, he says, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Human beings are human beings. So depending on which one of these you pick, you will actually get different approaches to how to practice Stoicism. 
the ones that we picked with uh, Greg uh, in the book uh, actually comes from Epictetus. And the notion here is that Epictetus thought that there are three fundamental types of exercises, he calls them three disciplines, uh, that we want to practice over and over in order to become better human beings. One is called the discipline of desire and aversion. The second one is the discipline of action. And the third one is the, the discipline of assent. Time permitting, I'm going to give you uh, one example from the first and one example from the second one. Uh, we're probably not going to get to the third one. Now, what are these? Desire and aversion is a discipline, is a set of exercises that allow you to question your desires and reorient them. So according to the Stoics, one of the reasons we tend to be unhappy in life is because we desire the wrong things. We can't attach to the wrong things, and we actually don't desire. We have aversion to things that we really should be favoring. Okay? Uh, as I said, in a minute, I'll give you an example of this. So reorienting your desires is a crucial component of Stoic practice. It's not just Stoicism. Uh, the, the notion of, for instance, non-attachment uh, in uh, Buddhism is very similar. Okay? And there are similar notions that come out of Christianity or medieval Judaism. So this, this is kind of all over the place. But So first of all, question your desires and reorient them uh, as much as you can. The second discipline is called of action because it deals with how to act in life, uh, particularly with what it, when it comes to other people, with our interactions with other people. As I said, we're social animals. Therefore, we need to interact with other people. But interactions with other people, I'm sure you notice, are not, don't always go smoothly. Uh, even with the people you love, even with your family, your friends, and so on and so forth, let alone with, with strangers. So the discipline of action is about how to best interact with other people. What kind of attitude should you have uh, when you interact with other people? And then the third one is the, dis the discipline of assent. Assent means to agree to something, right? So agree to what? Well, this is the discipline where you learn to question your own judgments. Everything we do in life is a matter of judgment. We judge that certain things are important and others are not. We judge that this person is a jerk and this other one is a nice guy, and so on and so forth. Everything, the way we perceive the world and we, we, the way we navigate the world has to do with judgments. Values are a human invention. They're not out there in the world. When something happens to you, it isn't good or bad. It just is. Whether it is bad or good, it's your own judgment. And therefore, a lot of Stoic practice has to do with questioning your own judgments because judgments come to us automatically as a result of instincts uh, or as a result of uh, conditioning from our cultural environment, and we just don't think about it. And we say, oh, yeah, that's, 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 not, that's good. The Stoic says, well, hold on. Is it really good? Take some distance between you and your, and your cognitive judgment and see if, in fact, what you think uh, intuitively is good or what you think automatically is good really is that good because more often than not it will turn out that it isn't and that you might want to revise your judgment about about things okay so these are the three disciplines one more bit of theory and then we get to the first exercise I think I'm doing pretty well actually um, I would love to get to have some time for for Q&A if we get that far uh, because that's the part that's more fun for me I've heard the talk before <laughs> Uh, many times, in fact. Um, okay, so the, the last bit of theory, we, we, got, we got living according to nature, the basic assumption. We got the three disciplines, which is the way you practice uh, stoicism. 
The third bit, uh, theoretical bit, is arguably one of the most crucial, and in fact, it is the, the, how we start the book. The first exercise is about this, and it's called the dichotomy of control. I'm going to tell you just very briefly what it is now, because the first exercise will actually get into some details. The notion is that some things are under our control, and other things are not. Okay? I know what you're thinking. Well, there's a bunch of stuff in between. There's some things that I kind of influence but don't control. Yes, but in fact, I'll show you, or I'll try to convince you in a minute, that anything, anything you do can be broken down into these two components. Even the things you influence, they have a component that is under your control, that's your influence, and there's a component that is not under your control. Okay? And the stoic notion is that if you realize that, and you start reorienting your behavior. You focus on the things that are under your control, and you bet your happiness on those. And you take the rest as it comes. You try to develop an attitude of equanimity toward outcomes because you don't control outcomes. You can do things up to a point, and, and your efforts should be about doing those things that you can actually do, putting the efforts where it actually matters. Then sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes things go work your way, sometimes they don't work out your way, and that's okay. It's part of wisdom is to accept that it doesn't always, things don't always turn out the way you want them. But so long as you made your effort, the best effort you could, then you have nothing to blame yourself for. Right? All right, so those are the three bits of theory. Now, let me get to the first exercise. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So each chapter in the book starts out with a little vignette of a situation where that could happen to any, any of us, uh, where somebody finds himself or herself in the trouble uh, and has to deal with that situation. Then immediately after that, we provide a quote from one of the ancient Stoics that we think is pertinent to that particular situation. After that, we explain the theory behind the quote, and then the rest of the chapter is an actual exercise. This is a book that you really need to use. Um, uh, you actually have to write down check boxes and things like that. How do you do that with the electronic version? Ah, because the publisher actually made available a bunch of PDFs that you can download from their website, and you can print them out and write down stuff. Same for the audiobook. They've really done a great job. I'm impressed. Okay, so here's the first vignette. See if it sounds familiar. It's easy to think that we have control over our lives when things are going the way we want. But what happens when we experience uncertainty? Consider our friend Alice, who faces this question at her job. Her quarterly performance review is coming up, and though she's been doing well, a familiar anxiety floods her body as negative what-if scenarios cross her mind. Could learning more about what's really in her control help Alice? What effect would that have on her psyche? I'm sure everybody has, gone, has, has experienced these kind of situations, right? 
you prepare for an exam, for a job interview, for a date, uh, and you say, oh crap, all this stuff could go wrong, and you get started working, uh, starting thinking negatively about things. Uh, this is something that cognitive behavioral therapists call catastrophizing. You start thinking about the worst possible case scenario, and it's ah, and you freak out. And of course, one good way to actually have the worst possible scenario materialize is precisely to freak out about it, right? Okay, now here's the quote that we think is pertinent. This is right at the beginning of Epictetus' manual. Uh, it opens up with this sentence. Of all existing things, some are in our power and others are not in our power. In our power are thought, impulse, will to get, and will to avoid. And in a word, everything which is our own doing. Things not in our power include the body, property, reputation, office, and in a word, everything which is not our own doing. I'm going to go and read it again very slowly, and we're going to actually talk about each of these things that he mentions here. But before I do that, let me remind you, if this sounds familiar, it's because the same kind of sentiment uh, comes up in a number of other uh, religions or philosophies. For instance, in Christianity, the serenity prayer, which is uh, the way in which a lot of 12-step uh, organizations open their meetings, says... God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, right? It's not a coincidence that uh, Christianity has adopted this kind of, uh, of sort of way of thinking. Uh, this comes, in fact, straight from Epictetus. As it turns out, Epictetus' manual was used as a training manual for Christian monks throughout the Middle Ages. So the Christians were very aware of this kind of thinking, the only difference between the original manual and the Christian version is that every time that Epictetus talks about Socrates, the Christian editors change it to Jesus. <laughs> but other than that, it's pretty much the same thing. Okay, so let me, let me get now very, very uh, slowly for a minute on what is it that Epictetus think, thinks is our under control and what is it not under our control. In the first group, thought impulse and the will to get and the will to avoid. Sounds like four things, but in fact it's three. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. So thought, it doesn't mean that you control your thought, every thought that comes to your head. That's clearly not the case. There's all sorts of random thinking that comes through. And I mean, that's one of the reasons people do meditation a lot of the time, right? To, to get these random thoughts uh, float by and then, and then go away. Thought here, if you actually read the, the ancient Greek version of this, the original version, Thought just means judgment. Your judgments are up to you. Whether you decide that something is good or not good, that's up to you. Now, of course, other people can influence you. That's the whole point of the advertising industry, right? To influence your judgments. But ultimately, the buck stops with you. Right? If I decide to buy a new um, uh, smartphone because the advertisement convinced me, I cannot blame Apple for it. It's me. I made that decision. Sure, Apple tried to you know, sell me the, the, the phone, and they try to convince me maybe in a sneaky way that I might not even realize, but ultimately that's my decision. It is my judgment that I need a phone, and that's the best thing that I can do at the moment with my money, right? So judgment is under your control. The second one is, ah, I lost it, impulse. Impulse. Now, it doesn't mean, impulse here doesn't mean, again, it's a technical word, it doesn't mean being impulsive, that's not under your control. In fact, the definition of being impulsive is that it's not under your control, right? Impulse here means the decision to act or not to act. Impulse as in movement, okay? 
The decision to act or not to act on something is under your control. Let me use the same example. Oh, I arrived at the judgment that a new iPhone is good for me. Uh, Apple is not paying me, by the way, for this. <laughs> they should. They probably should. Um, so I, I, I arrived at the judgment that a new iPhone is good for me. Now I take the action to actually go to the store and buy the iPhone, right? So action is under my control, again. Your actions are under your control. You cannot be compelled to do anything. I don't see enough skeptical glances here. What do you mean? What if Apple points a gun to my head and says, buy the iPhone? Even in that case, according to Epictetus, you're not compelled to do it. It probably is a good idea to do it. But that only means that you judged that your life is more important than you know, not buying an, an, an iPhone. It's probably a good judgment, right? But still, you're not compelled to act. Nothing can compel you to act. Nobody can compel you to act. It's always your judgment that it says, oh, well, in fact, Epictetus in another place says, um, he's responding to somebody who's threatening him and says, oh, I can put you in jail. And he says, no, you can put my body in jail. I can cut off your head. Sure, go ahead. Whoever told you that, I, that you couldn't, but you cannot force me to do what you want me to do at the risk of my own life. And then finally, the will to get and the will to avoid. The reason I'm saying those are the same thing is because those are your desires and aversions, right? And aversions are just the opposite of desires. It's a negative desire. Your desires are under your, under your control. Again, however, let's make sure that we understand because the English is kind of uh, uh, vague about it. It's, it's kind of ambiguous about it. You naturally desire all sorts of things. But your desires, according to the Stoics, and as it turns out, according to modern cognitive behavioral therapy, are actually in part cognitive. They're not just feelings that you don't control. If you have a desire for, let me use the same example again, uh, the iPhone, this is the result of a number of judgments that you've actually made. That that's a good thing, that is a cool thing, that it's not too expensive. How could you possibly judge that? Um, <laughs> that sort of stuff, right? So what you feel as a desire, as, oh, I don't control my desire for, for an iPhone. Yes, you do, because it's the result of some thinking going on. You may not necessarily be aware of that thinking, but you can definitely question it, right? And by questioning your, that judgment, you actually feed back into your desire, and you can alter your desire over time. Notice that these three things correspond to the three disciplines that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, right? Your judgments, that, that, that's the discipline of assent. Your actions, that's the discipline of action. And your desires and aversions, that's the discipline of desire and aversion. So right at the beginning of the, of the Enchiridion, Epictetus tells you, here's what we're going to deal with, these three disciplines. Now, a couple of minutes on the stuff that he thinks is not under our control, because that's also counterintuitive. Body, property, reputation, office, meaning your career. Wait a minute. What do you mean I'm not in charge of my body? It's my body, first of all. Uh, and second of all, yeah, I can go to the gym, exercise. I can eat healthy foods. Uh, I can do all sorts. Of, I can go to the doctor on a regular basis and have a checkup. You know, I can, I can do all sorts of things to improve my body, right? Yes, but you still don't control the, the ultimate outcome because you can do all of that and that, uh, and then a virus strikes you and you're in bed with fever. Or, and then some nutcase runs you over with a uh, car and you broke a leg. The outcome is not on your control. 
the decision to do everything you can in order to maintain your body in good shape is. But that's a judgment and an action. It's not the outcome, right? So, and the same goes for everything else that is listed here. Your reputation. Sure, your reputation, you can influence, you can, you know, try to be a good person and be helpful to others and, you know, build a good reputation. But, you know, somebody else might just start circulating a nasty rumor and people start believing it and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, your reputation is not entirely in your hands. Your job is the same thing. You can do the best job you can, but, you know, downturn in the economy, you're downsized, as they say in the United States. Uh, it's an awful term. Um, it's not under your control. You can do your best interview you can, and you, you think you deserve your job. Yeah, but you know, guess what? Somebody else actually did a better interview, and they're better at that particular thing. Or maybe the guy who was interviewing you was just got up in the wrong, on the wrong side of the bed, and it was in a bad mood, and so you're not getting the job, right? So everything you do can be broken down into these two components. Essentially, what the Stoics are telling you is to internalize your goals. So let me come up, let me give you a couple of examples. One we've already gone through a little bit. Job interview. It comes natural to us to say, I really want that job. Right? That's the desire. That's what you want. The Stoic says, no, you don't. What you really want is to prepare in the best way possible in order to maximize your chances of getting the job. That's what you want to desire. That's what should be your desire because that's entirely under your control. Again, actually getting the job isn't. Um, let's say that you're playing a, a competitive sports in, you know, let's say tennis. Uh, oh, I really want to win the match. Wrong, because that's not under your control. Your desire should be to really want to be the best player in order to maximize your chances of winning the, the match. Oh, I really want my wife or husband or boyfriend to love me. Wrong, that's not under your control. What you should be desire is to be the most loving person toward that other so that that maximizes the chances that he or she is gonna love you back. But you don't control what they actually do, you don't control what they actually feel. Right? So it basically turns out that this is all an exercise in, in internalizing your goals. That's why Epictetus tells you that if you do that, you'll be happy and you'll never blame yourself for anything, regardless of the outcome. Because once that you've done everything you can, what, what, are, what are you blaming yourself for? You just accept that sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. So that's the first exercise. Oh, sorry, that's the, the beginning of the first exercise. What we actually say in the book is to do is to take a week and then every day, uh, at the end of the day, go over and write down something that happened to you uh, that didn't go well or didn't go exactly the way you wanted it and then break it down into the in these two components. What actually was under my control and what actually was not under my control. By paying attention to this thing little by little, this becomes second, second nature, right? Now, pretty much after a few years, everything I do, I, I start out with that question. So what, what part of this is under my control? Um, that will increase your confidence, will increase the, the, your happiness in the broad sense of you know, being content with what you do. Incidentally, it's also the best way to actually achieve the outcome, right? Uh, it's, it, there is a correlation between your efforts and your outcome. It's not, it's not a random thing. So it, as it turns out, you also increase the chances of, of uh, getting your outcome, the outcome you want, but as long as you remember that there is no guarantee of actually doing so, which is actually the beginning of the second part of the book, because the first one is about the discipline of desire uh, and um, aversion. The second part is about the discipline of action, so how you should act in the world, right? 
So again, it starts out with a, a vignette. As we go out our day, uh, about our day, our minds naturally turn toward accomplishing our goals. This can be useful in achieving those goals, but can also come at a cost. If all we think about is accomplishing the goal, then we put our mental well-being in the hands of chance. This is what happened to Amiria as she felt her anger rising as she considered the, the guy using the squat rack for bicep curls. This is for those of you who actually go to the gym. Her main goal was to get her squats in, and by chance someone was using the equipment for something he didn't need it for. While curling in the squat rack is definitely bad gym etiquette, the Stoics were cautioned that anger isn't useful in this situation. How can we maintain our com composure when coping with, coping with the frustrations we encounter while doing, going about our day? In fact, I, I'm going to be a little stronger than this. For the Stoics, anger is never a good idea. Uh, we, we live in a society where, for some reason, we got convinced that a little bit of anger is a good thing. Oh, that motivates you. Um, Seneca wrote an entire book about anger. And he was responding to this argument because Aristotle was the, the guy that said, no, no, a little bit of anger is good. For instance, imagine an army. You want them to go into battle, and you want your soldiers to be a little angry because otherwise they're not going to go and do what they're supposed to do. To which Seneca says, well, there are other ways to get that kind of outcome. For instance, you can get your army a little drunk. But that doesn't mean it's a good idea. Uh, your soldiers should be going into battle because they care about their families and their lives and you know, because they think it's a good reason to do it and so on and so forth, not because they're drunk. Um, similarly with anger, the, the Stoics think that anger is a temporary madness. It, it pushes out your reason. So even when it's justified, even when there is good reasons, like in this case, if you act on that anger, that's problematic. You're going you're gonna to very likely do something that you're later going to regret. Okay, so what's the pertinent quote here? It's again from Epictetus. This is one of my favorite ones. He says, um, when you're about to, to take some, something in hand, remind yourself what manner of thing it is. If you're going to bathe, he's talking about public baths. You know, we're ancient Rome here. Um, put before your mind what happens in the bath. Water pouring over some, others being jostled, some reveling, others stealing. And you will set to work more securely if you say to yourself at once, I want to bathe, and I want to keep my will in harmony with nature. And so in each thing you do. For in this way, if anything turns up, to hinder you in your bathing, you will be ready to say, I did not want only to bathe, but to keep my, my will in harmony with nature. And I should not so keep it if I lose my temper at what happens. An alternative translation of the same little bit at the end says, I cannot keep harmony with nature if I go to pieces every time someone splashes some water over me. Here's What is the notion here? The notion is that when you set out in the morning and you want to do something, I'll give you an example that it's a little bit more up-to-date than the, going to the thermal baths. Um, I want to go to the movies. I go often to the movies. Um, these days, it's almost invariably what happens is that the, you know, the lights go down, the movie starts, and some jerk just two or three rows in front of you pulls out his mobile phone, probably an Apple, um, and starts texting because you know he absolutely has to text now or he has to share something on Facebook right at that moment without apparently realizing or without caring that now there is this glare uh, on everybody behind him that's kind of interfering with the movie. Now what are you going to do? Um, you get upset. You get angry. And then all of a sudden, your, your experience is ruined. 
and you lost harmony with nature, meaning you lost your cool, you, you lost your temper. Instead, what the Stoics does is like, okay, what am I doing tonight? I'm going to the movies. Great, so be prepared, because chances are there's going to be a jerk with a cell phone <laughs> right in front of you, right? That doesn't mean that you just have to put up with it, because there are reasonable ways to actually handle the situation, right? You can go to the guy and say, hey, sorry, you mind? But the outcome is not guaranteed, right? He may turn off the phone or may not. Now you have other options. You can go to the management of the movie theater and ask for their intervention. But the more you escalate this, the less likely it is that you're gonna enjoy the rest of the, of the evening, right? Also, you have alternatives. Buy a large television set and stay home <laughs> and invite your friends over uh, to watch the movie or read a book. It's, it's a perfectly valid alternative. The point is, Epictetus says, every time you do something, remember that your goal should be twofold. To do that something, whatever it is, to enjoy that something that you, got, you, you set out to do, but also to keep, I, I, like, I like the phrase, to keep harmony with nature. Nature here means human nature, meaning, as I said, social and reasonable, right? So keeping harmony with nature means to, to remain social and remain reasonable no matter what the circumstances are. In the exercise, what we do is, what we suggest is that you take a whole week, you start out in the morning before getting out of bed or anything. No, get out of bed first. Um, but before we go out, write down uh, something that you think might happen that might push you off your balance with nature, your harmony with nature. Like, oh, tonight I'm going to the movie theater or tonight, today I'm going to the, you know, to the thermal baths or something like that. If you're that lucky that there's a, there are thermal baths in your, in your town. Um, and then write it down and say, pre prepare yourself. You know, what am I going to do if that happens? So this is a way to foresee and think ahead about stuff that you know it's very likely to happen. There's all sorts of applications. My friend Greg, for instance, uh, has a long commute because he lives in the middle of nowhere in Brooklyn. Um, and he has to go to Manhattan for work. And he hates the, the, the morning commute in the subway because there is, it's very crowded, there's all sorts of people smelling uh, all sorts of odors. Uh, they're very attached to you, they're very, somebody's listening to the music apparently without realizing that there are earphones have been invented uh, a few years ago and so on and so forth, right? But what he does is like, well, okay, I have two goals here, to get to my job via the subway because I don't have an alternative, I can't do it otherwise, and to keep in harmony with nature. And so he can do sort of preemptive things. Uh, get some uh, uh, noise-canceling earphones, for instance, your headphones, uh, bring a book, or listen to an audio book or something like that, pick the corner of the subway you know, car that it's the least uh, crowded, and so on and so forth. So you're ready to go. But you have to always keep in mind that you have two goals for everything you do. Thanks very much for uh, your attention. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. It was hosted by me, Catherine Flay, and our guest speaker this week was Massimo Pigliucci. For more from Massimo, listen to him debate why the universe seems designed for human life with Chiara Maletto and Bernard Carr in our episode Goldilocks World. Or listen to Evolution After Darwin, where Massimo, Zana Clay and Tim Lewins question if there is more to evolution than we might think. Please do leave a comment and review on whatever platform you listen on. And tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.